Well, good morning. Happy Sunday. My name is AJ. We are in week two of our relationship series called Lovesick. And today we're talking about marriage. Or for my Princess Bride fans out there, today we're talking about marriage. Marriage is what... No, I won't do the whole thing. We're talking about marriage today. And, um, and I'm hoping that we can give ourselves a new posture in the way that we approach marriage. You know, Tim Keller has this phenomenal quote. Tim Keller said, if each spouse would turn to the other and say, I will, I, well, here, I will treat my selfishness as the main problem in our marriage, then you have the, pro, pro, uh, the prospect for great things. Let me say it again, because some of y'all need to start your notes now in the message. <laughs> Tim Keller said, if each spouse would turn to the other and say, I will treat my own selfishness as the main problem in our marriage, then you will have the prospect for great things. Title of the message today is, it's not you, it's me. <laughs> A couple of weeks ago, tell us, preached, it's not you, it's we, it's about community, your purpose is connected to my purpose. I'm hoping to give us a new posture in the way that we approach our marriage, that when there's a problem, we say, it's not you, it's me. That when there's conflict and there's tension in the relationship, we are going to take the posture, it's not you, it must be me. When we can't get past the decision, when we don't know what to do next, when there's just that, that funk over the household, we're going we're gonna to commit ourselves to saying, it's not you, it's me. This is the year of taking responsibility and taking action and stepping into the role that God has called each of us to play in our relationships. It's not you. It's me. We're going to be in Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Turn there and read along with me, if you would. It's a good chunk of scripture. Here we go. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ... Any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Can you say amen? amen. Let's pray. Father God, come and have your way in this service. Fill my mouth with your words, God, that you would be glorified that Christ would be held high. Father, that you would do the work that you are seeking to do in, through, and among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think there's one thing that we can all agree on, and I don't think there's many things we can all agree on, but I think there's one thing we can all agree on. I think we can all agree that we all love a good love song. 
Is that right? We love a good love song. Love a good, my, my wedding song, my first dance song was Stay With You by John Legend. You missed it in first service. I sang it to my wife. I'm not going to do it again because she's not here in this service. So you missed out. Stay With You by John Legend. We love a good love song. More than any good love song, who doesn't love a good throwback love song? Come on. Throwback love songs are so much better than modern day love songs, right? There's just something about them. New songs are great, but there's something about the nostalgia. Like, don't go putting on some boys to men in my house. You're going to watch and see what's going to happen. <laughs> don't put on any Casey and JoJo, any Tony Braxton, none of that. Don't put any of that on in my house and see what happens. Some of y'all going, that wasn't a throwback jam. I'm going, that's 30 years ago, you guys. <laughs> the 90s is 30 years ago. But my mama raised me on that King Cole and Etta James, that last and all that too, so I can go there if you want to go there with me. There's something like a throwback love song that just changes the game. Michelle loves uh, 90s hip-hop and R&B. That's her like sweet spot. Don't be talking about salt and pepper because she will shoop, shoop, a doop, shoop, a doop, shoop, a doop, a you all the way up out this church. She knows every lyric to every word. I mean, come on. But like, have you listened to some of these love songs lately? Like, listen to them. You guys, they're so bad. (laughs) They are so inappropriate. I was trying to find some examples, but I couldn't find any because we're in church. Like, these, they say some things. We need to watch what we listen to. But some of these songs, too, they're not just inappropriate. Some of these songs are actually sad love songs. They sound good. They sound happy. But you listen to the word. Like Tina Turner saying, what's love got to do with it? What's love but a secondhand emotion? And man, I definitely did not understand that song when I first heard it. Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? Yeah, that's right, Tina. Who does need a heart? I don't think she means what she thinks she means. It's sad. What's love got to do with it? I'm like, Tina, love's got everything to do with it, sis. That's what we're talking about. Love has everything to do with it. What's the role of love in our marriages, love in our lives? It's got to play a part. It's got to shape us and affect us and influence us. So here's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about what is the evidence of God's love in our life. Because Paul is saying, if you have received any encouragement from Christ, any comfort from his love, if the spirit is alive within you, if you've got any affection, any sympathy, there ought to be some evidence of that in your relationships. And what is the evidence that Paul holds out for us? He says, there ought to be a desire for unity, a desire for oneness. There ought to be a prioritization of peace in our households. Has God moved in your life in any way? What is the evidence of it? Because marriage is the definition of two becoming one. It's the definition of oneness. And we talked last week about how that has to be motivated, informed, and supplied by the love of God. The point I'm trying to make is just this. There is no greater catalyst for unity in your marriage than the love of Christ. It's nothing greater. Nothing will have a more profound effect on your relationship than the love of God. And I think we will see the evidence of that type of love in our marriage relationships in three ways. So our three points for today. We're going to see the evidence of God's love in the way we lay ourselves down, the way we lift our spouse up, and the way we allow Christ to lead. 
So let's talk about what we need to lay down. Because Paul says, you ought to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, you should count others more significant than yourselves. Now, we're all motivated by selfishness. I don't say this to shame you or bring any sense of condemnation. We're all in the same, in the same boat here. And so all of us have motivations, desires, and ambitions that are rooted in selfishness. When it comes to marriage, I think for many of us, even our desire for marriage is actually a selfish desire. We've made the ideal of getting married, of having the proposal, of showing off the ring, of the photo shoots, of the wedding showers, of all your friends being excited for you, of you getting the attention. We've made the ideal of marriage an idol. Or maybe it's not even just the ideal of marriage, but it's the great fear of loneliness that we will sacrifice our standards, lower our bar, and allow anything to get us out of that space so that we can just, just as if marriage approves you, which it does not. Marriage does not approve you as a Christian. It does not approve you as a human. It does not make you better than anybody else. Whether you're single or married, you are approved by God and God alone. But we all chase that honeymoon phase. That excitement phase, the tingle when you hold the hand for the first time, that first kiss that makes your head go all fuzzy. Like, where am I? And we love that. We love those moments and we chase after that. But we're not chasing love in those moments. Because when we put our desire for marriage, our desire for that electricity and that excitement as the thing we want, you guys know that's not love That's ego because you love to feel loved. You love the idea that somebody would be so into you that they would reciprocate these feelings for you, that they would would share in this moment with you. And that makes us feel great. And as in any relationship, it's not a bad thing, but you get used to holding that hand. And the electricity fades in that moment. And that's, that's okay. That's very normal. But what we're left with is an actual opportunity to love And we didn't learn what love was in the first place. We thought love was electricity. That was not love. That was was ego. God is saying, if, if you've got a selfish ambition in your desire for marriage or what you desire from your relationship, don't chase it. Just be careful because I've got a better way for you. We've got to lay down our desires for marriage. I think we need to lay down our expectations of marriage. Our desire for marriage, our expectations of marriage. Our culture has been in the process of redefining the purpose of marriage. And that messes with our expectations. And here's the thing about expectations. The greatest source of frustration and disappointment is going to come from unmet expectations. I thought you'd do this. You didn't do it. Now I'm mad about it. But the greatest source of unmet expectations is unexpressed expectations. How could my wife know to do something for me that I've never told her I needed done for me? So now she doesn't do the thing I wanted her to do, and now I'm mad at her as if that's her fault. The greatest source of unmet expectations is unexpressed expectations, and the greatest source of unexpressed expectations is unknown expectations. You didn't know you thought it ought to be this way when you got married. That's just what you brought in. That's the assumption that you brought in. And culture over the last 60 years or so has been redefining the purpose of marriage. And that messes with our expectations. It's why so many of us get disappointed in our relationship. We've we've misplaced our expectations. 
Marriage used to be about sacrificing the me for the us. I'm going to lay down my preferences, my desires, and even my needs on the behalf of my family and my spouse. I'm sacrificing me for us, for the greater good, for the common good of this household and this family. And in doing so, one of the benefits is you undergo great personal character development. You learn what it means to sacrifice what you want to give what somebody else needs. You learn to listen to diverse perspectives and other opinions, even though your wife, that that opinion makes no sense to you. But you're going to listen to it because you're going to honor her. And you are going to undergo a process called sanctification. It's becoming like Christ as you lay down your life for somebody else. You are going to grow in your character. And then certainly, of course, marriage is going to create a stable, healthy, and secure environment for children to thrive in. There's, There's no surprise about that. That's what marriage was supposed to be. But what has our culture made it? Now I believe marriage is best summed up like this. Here's a quote from a New York Times article from a few years ago. The writer of the uh, article, Tara Parker Pope, she says this. For centuries, marriage was viewed as an economic and social institution. And the emotional and intellectual needs of the spouses were secondary to the survival of the marriage itself. But in modern relationships... People are looking for a partnership, and they want partners who make their own lives more interesting, who help each of them attain valued goals. Therefore, marriage used to be about us, but now it's about me. title of that article is The Happy Marriage is the Me Marriage. We have made the purpose of marriage personal fulfillment by means of another person. We are looking to be personally fulfilled by another person. Which is a higher standard than scripture sets. Last week, y'all were like, yo, those standards were way too high, man. That's a high biblical standard. I'm not sure if I can live to that. I'm telling you, that is nothing compared to what the culture says you ought to get in your marriage. Because now, all you have to do is find someone who thinks you're perfect in every way and has no desire to change anything about you. Somebody who's willing to lay their whole life down for you to achieve whatever goals you want to achieve. Likewise, you've got to think they're perfect in every way and have no desire to change a single thing about them because that would be oppressive. And you've got to be willing to give your whole life to them for them to achieve all of their life goals. You've got to not fight much, agree on everything. You've got to have similar preferences and tastes in music, movies, travel, film, food. You better be of the same political party. How could you ever reconcile over that? You've got to be going in the same direction in life. And above it all, you've got to be instantly, spontaneously, constantly and naturally always attracted to each other. And God forbid that chemistry ever falter because if the chemistry's not there, we've got to abandon ship. And now we're going, well, it's no wonder nobody can find anybody. <laughs> you guys, that person does not exist. You're chasing a pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. There's nothing there. <laughs> We've made the purpose of marriage personal fulfillment. And I'm just telling you, that's a selfish ambition. And God is saying to us, don't do that. Abandon that. Run from that. That is not going to provide you fulfillment in any sense. Thirdly, I think ways, things that we need to lay down, our desire for marriage, our expectation of marriage, and our conduct in marriage. I think this reveals itself uh, most common in the way that we have conflict. So when we have disagreement with our spouse or our significant other, 
we begin to see the selfish ambitions of our conflict bubble up to the surface. This is when we refuse to submit our emotions to God, and so we continually react emotionally instead of responding with maturity. For some reason, we are committed to winning in the relationship. I don't mean like I'm winning in relationship, like look at what, I mean, for some reason we have introduced competition into the household and for whatever reason in arguments, we are saying, I am going to beat you today. You will lose, I will win. This is a selfish ambition. And yet many of us say, well, well, I'm justified in my response. You don't know what he did. I'm justified in the way I need to say what I need to say. I need to say what I, what I feel. He got to hear this. And I'm just saying, we say this is in the name of justice, but it is in the name of pride. We need to submit our emotions to God first. And I get it. He or she may have done something really wrong that really made you feel some kind of way. Your feelings are not your choice. I'm not saying you're not allowed to feel that way. Your feelings are not a choice, but your actions and your behaviors are always a choice. So just because it's justified doesn't mean it's right. And just because it might be justified doesn't mean it's helpful. So in these moments, what is motivating our desire to get the last word, to push that dig in, to comment about her mama or whatever it is, Just making sure you're awake on Sunday morning. <laughs> That's selfishness. And God is saying, if it's motivated by a selfish ambition, abandon it. Do not pursue it. Do not chase it. Leave it where it is. Do nothing from this vantage point. Because we can choose how we conduct ourselves in marriage. Secondly, if one is how we lay ourselves down, two is how we lift our spouse up. Paul says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I'm going to talk about what your spouse needs, what they need from you. Uh, Shanti Feldman is a marriage author. She's done a survey, studies, research. She's wrote a number of great books for men only, for women only. I would commend them to you. It gives you a look, peek inside the minds of um, the opposite sex. And she addresses the primary insecurities of men and of women. Primary insecurity. What's the underlying issue, the underlying insecurity that impacts and affects us more than anything else in our lives? And she would say this. For women, a woman's primary insecurity sounds something like this. Am I lovable? Am I special? Am I beautiful? Am I worthy of being loved for who I am on the inside? Am I worthy of love for who I am on the inside? Now, for men, it's very different. No surprise. A man's primary insecurity sounds a little bit more like this. Am I able? Am I adequate? Do I measure up and do I have what it takes? Am I any good at what I do on the outside? It's different. That doesn't make it wrong. It's different. And Paul is saying we ought to prioritize the interests of others. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. So I just want to give you three things a woman needs and three things a man needs. Now, of course, I'll say this caveat again at the end to make sure you hear it, but this is not exhaustive. These are not the only things a man needs and they're not the only thing a woman needs. And certainly some of the things I say a woman needs, a man also needs. 
You guys are grown-ups. You are mature. You can have a dialogue about this after the fact. But for the majority of men and for the majority of women, this seems to be true more often than not. So men in the room, here's what your woman needs. She needs you to cover her. She needs you to care for her. And she needs you to communicate with her. She needs you to cover her. I got some amens over here. Some husbands better be taking some notes this morning. That's all. I, that's your last tip. She needs you to cover her. First Corinthians eleven three says this. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Men, she needs your covering. She needs a safe place. She needs to feel emotionally safe, that she can be vulnerable and express her desires, her thoughts, her insecurities, and that you will handle them with care. She needs to be physically safe. She needs to know that she's in a secure environment, that there is no harm to her physical health and, and, or well-being in any way. You are covering her, providing physical safety. She needs financial stability. She needs to know that you've got a plan and that you're working towards it, and she can help you with it. She needs your trust. She needs your covering. Men, she needs your leadership. She needs you to lead her, not because a woman can't lead, but because the covering you provide in the marriage relationship provides a security that allows her to blossom and thrive for all that God made her to be. It's not a question of who can and who can't lead. It's the effect of your leadership as a man that has on her and her life. So how can you show her you love her and that she's worthy of your love? Cover her. Lead her. Make a plan and follow through. Have a vision. Be present in every moment. Be going somewhere and doing something with your life. Lead her. And watch how she blossoms under that covering. Watch how she grows and those insecurities begin to melt away because she knows she is safe with you. Secondly, she needs you to care for her. She needs your affection. Ephesians 5.33 says, let each of you love his wife as himself. Now, it's no surprise that women need to feel loved. But what is surprising is how easy it is for a woman to not feel loved. For men, we talked about light switch love. We sometimes feel, I just flip the switch on, I'll tell her, and it'll stay on until I turn it off. But I'm telling you, her love tank runs dry every day. And so this type of love, men, this type of affection, this type of care needs to be communicated constantly. It needs to be demonstrated daily. It needs to always be acknowledged. She needs you to hold her hand in church. And all the men said, Okay. She needs you to give her a hug every day and a kiss before bedtime. She needs your emotional affection that you care and that you're invested in the things she says and does, that you are a listening, active part of her life. You need to know how to speak her love language, not just know what it is. I know Pastor June speaks Korean. That doesn't mean I speak Korean. You might know what her love language is, but that doesn't mean you know how to speak it. You got to do both. You got to do both. You got to learn. If you meet her emotional needs through care and affection in word and in deed, I'm telling you, she will thrive under your care for her. Amen. 
And that's the man who knows what I'm talking about. (laughs) Thirdly, she needs you to communicate with her. Proverbs 18, 21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruits. We know that women are much more verbal than men. They need to talk it out. Might not be true in my household as much, but on the majority, women are more verbal than men. They want to talk about how they feel. So men, what does that mean you need to do? You need to listen. And she needs to hear from you. She needs to hear you respond to her. She needs to know. She needs to know. Not she wants to know. She needs to know what's going on in here. Because if you don't tell her, she will assume the worst. Please, do not let her assume the worst. Tell her what you think. Tell her how you feel. Tell her your plan. Tell her your expectations. Talk with her. Because the Bible says that there is life in the power of your tongue. And so if you're looking at a relationship that seems lifeless, that seems stagnant, that seems dead, why don't you try talking about it? Prioritize communication. Because if the only time you talk is when you fight, death is in the power of the tongue. But if when you talk and communicate and connect with her, it will bring life. And I'm telling you, watch what it does to your relationship. It will bring life back into it. This is not all inclusive, as I said. There's many more things a woman needs, and men need some of these things, but we're going to move. we got a lot to cover. So what do men need? Remember, men need respect. Their primary insecurity is, am I any good at what I do? So women, your man needs you to honor him. He needs you to show him respect. Ephesians 5.33 says, let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, men, First of all, you need to be worthy of respect, okay? You need to live a respectable life. You need to raise your own standard and conduct yourself as a man that is worthy of honor. You don't get it just because you woke up today as a man. You live a respectable lifestyle. But women, still, you're called to show honor and show respect, whether he is or isn't. And so what you can do in those moments is you can just celebrate the glimpses. Just if there's a flicker of hope, if there's a flash, if there's a moment, would you just grab onto it and celebrate it? He might only pray when his parents come over for dinner, but you say, oh, baby, when you pray. I feel so attracted to you. I've never seen a man lead our family more spiritually than when you pray at Thanksgiving. My God, I love it. He might not spend any time with the kids, but when he does, oh, I've never seen you more attractive than when you're a father to my children. Oh, my goodness. I love seeing you lead our children. Affirm the behavior you want to see and honor him even in the glimpses, even in the moments. What do we normally do? We go, oh, now you're going to decide to... No, 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 (laughs) no. Don't do that. Submit yourself. Help him. Honor him. Support him. Even in the little moments. Take these two words, they're going to transform your relationship. These are the two words a man wants to hear more than I love you. 
more than I love you, a man wants to hear you say, thank you. Thank you for working at that job to put food on our table. I know how much you hate it. Thank you for dealing with those coworkers. I love the house we have and the roof that's over our head. Whatever his chores are, thank you for taking care of the lawn and the grass. I love that I don't have to do it. I love, I love how you take care of our house. Thank you for working all day, hanging with the kids as soon as you get home and listening to me talk about my day. I am so grateful for you. You don't know how much you mean to me. Thank you for everything you do. And do you know what he will say when you say thank you every day? Yeah, no problem. It's fine. Don't mention it. Don't worry about it. But do you know what it does on the inside of a man? Who knows his woman sees him, values him, and supports him. Who knows that he's not alone in what he does and that all of his hard work is not in vain. On the inside, there'll be a transformation. But he might just say, oh yeah, for sure, it's fine. He needs you to honor him. Number two, he needs you to help him. Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it is not good that a man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, we need a right understanding of what the word help means. And uh, maybe on Wednesday night, we'll do more study on the, on the Hebrew word and the Greek word used here and, and all of its complex meaning. But I would just say this. God has called you to be a helper and not a critic. And what I mean by that, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to like shame anybody or, or just like, ooh, yeah. I'm just saying, when you question his every move, when you challenge what he does and you only point out what's wrong with it, when he does a job and you say, oh, but you missed this, when you don't say thank you, it's not that that's like not nice. It's that you're striking at the primary insecurity that says you're not good enough. You're not worth it. You're not able I only see what's wrong. And I don't think any woman means that in her intention. I think most of you mean to help. And I'm just telling you, what your man needs is help in a different form. He needs to know that you have his back in the good decisions and the bad ones. He needs to know that you're his ride or die through the thick and the thin. He needs to know that you value and appreciate and want to help him in everything that he does. We need your help in this way because we need your gifts. We need your perspective. We need your encouragement and we need your affirmation. You elevate us like nobody else in our lives elevates us. We need to know you see our vision and you're on board with it. Even if there's a few things you do differently. We need to know you've got our back. We need, your, we need your help. Moving quickly. Number three, lastly, and I'll just hit on this quickly because it's Sunday morning. It didn't, I didn't have an H for it, so forgive me for the alliteration. Um, your husband needs you to connect with him in intimacy. Paul says we ought not to, to, to deprive one another of this in our marriage relationship. And all I want to say is this. For most men... This is prioritized as a need. It's a biological outworking. It is different for most women, not all, but for most. And so for many women, it doesn't seem like a need. It seems just like a want. And I'm just telling you, it's not wrong. It's just different. 
And my hope and my admonishment this morning is that this would spark a dialogue in your marriage relationship about this need, how it's met, and the impact it has on your relationship. And I trust you to do just that. And if you're afraid to have that conversation because you've never done it before, schedule a meeting with a pastor, marriage counselor, have that conversation. It will do wonders in changing your relationship. Okay. Caveat again. This is for the majority of people based on the majority of situations, on the majority of men and the majority of women. There is no substitute for a meaningful conversation after service before the Super Bowl. (laughs) Choose your spots with wisdom. If you want to talk about it, talk about it on the way home. After like 4 or 5 p.m., the communication lanes are, are shut down for a day. But there's no excuse. There's nothing that takes the place of a meaningful conversation whereby you go, were those your needs? How am I meeting those needs? Are there other things you need from me? How can I best meet your needs? Nothing will transform than the dialogue, okay? So here's here's the picture I want you to have as you think about what it means to put somebody else's interests ahead of your own. If you are always putting your spouse's needs behind yours, She will always put your needs behind hers. And so you'll put her needs behind you, and you will always be moving backwards in your relationship. But if you put your spouse's needs ahead of yours, she'll put your needs ahead of you, and you'll put her needs ahead of you, and she'll put her needs ahead of you, and you will always be moving forward in your journey and your relationship. And that's what we want, healthy forward momentum and growth. And the root of it is going to be prioritizing the needs of others. So how do we do that? In humility, we listen to ourselves less and we follow Christ more. We stop trying to do marriage in our own strength. This is our third point. We need to allow Christ to lead us by his example. Before we get to it, I was telling Michelle about this message and talking through my thoughts for it. And she goes... um, hey, just be, be sure to address the and if nots. And I said, what's the and if nots? And she said, well, you're going to hold out this high ideal of biblical marriage. And you're going to hold out what God calls us to and what Christ's example is. And you're going to try to pull us up to a higher standard and a, and a higher level. And for so many people, they're going to hear that. And that's not going to be them. That ship has sailed in their life already whether it's been through divorce, loss of a spouse, an abusive situation, you've had no example at home in your parents, you grew up in a broken household, and you have nothing within you to do this. And so you hear this, and we say, and if that's not you, my prayer, my deep desire, is that you would not hear a voice of shame in condemnation this morning that says you're not good enough and that there's no hope for you because that is the voice of the devil. That is not the voice of God and that is absolutely not what I'm trying to hold out to you today. If that's not you, 
my prayer for you is that you would look to Christ who is your redeemer, who is your healer, who is your restorer. Christ who would say, I'm holding your future in my hands. I reconcile all things unto myself and your best days absolutely in Christ are ahead of you. So if that's not you, that's okay because Christ is holding you and he has you. Because the reality is all of us are making this up as we go. Most of us are making this up as we go. A few of us listen to wise counsel and people and, and we help and we take our marriage classes with Pastor JC and Rosa Sherrod and, and we get equipped. But so many of us are just making this up as we go. And, and again, I think what I'm trying to hold out to you is that in Christ, there's a better way to do this. There's a better way, and it's yours in him. The Bible says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It is your, you have it. If you have Christ, you have this mind amongst yourself. It is within you. Christ can move through you in this way. And what does Christ do? He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Jesus submitted himself to the Father. He emptied himself of his divine right, and he took the form of a servant, of a helper. And although he was equal to God, he did not consider equality with God to be his highest purpose in life. But he laid that down to meet the needs of others. He says, Ma, I am here to do the will and the work of the Father. So, women... When the Bible says in Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The biblical idea of submission has nothing to do with equality. It has everything to do with being like Christ. That when we submit and lay down our preferences, our desires, and even our, our motivations, our dreams, our aspirations... We come under the covering. We put others first. We're allowing our spouse and if we have children, our children to flourish and to thrive in the purposes that God has for them because we are acting like Christ acted. But that's not all that Christ did. It also says that, that Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was so committed to the purposes of God that he was obedient even when it was hard, even when it hurt, even when it was led up to the point of death. And we talked last week, what motivates that type of obedience and constant sacrifice? It's love and only love. So men, when the Bible tells you in Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, we understand that the biblical ideal of love is not giving up everything you have and losing your life. It is sacrificing your life for the benefit of another. Love comes at the price of self-sacrifice. Obedience to the command of God, even when it's hard, even when it hurts, and even when you feel like it might kill you. God calls men to live and to lead and to love like this because of what it will do in bringing fulfillment to your household and to your spouse. And because listen, listen how Paul concludes this portion of scripture. 
He says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' submission leads directly to the glory of God. Jesus' sacrifice leads directly to the glory of God. And that tells me, women, your submission and men, your sacrifice leads directly to God being glorified in the earth. That your marriage has the potential to contain within it the glory of our God. That there can be something that happens in your relationship where a man says, I'm going to live sacrificially, laying down my life to create an environment where my wife and my children can thrive. And that wife goes, man, I'm going to follow that leadership. I'm going to help him. I'm going to subordinate myself to him and lift him up so he can lead us better. And she's going to allow her husband and her children to thrive and to step into all that God has created them to be. And there's going to be this beautiful back and forth whereby your needs are met, so I'm going to meet your needs. And my needs are met, so I'm going to need your meet your needs and that type of submission and sacrifice glorifies God and it will be one of the greatest apologetics of the gospel our world has ever seen your marriage holds within it a daily physical tangible applicable presentation of the gospel You get to live it out every single day. This is God's gracious gift to you. (laughs) Hallelujah. And I believe that if we let Christ have our marriages and lead us in marriage like this, he will do more than we could have ever asked, dreamed, hoped, or imagined in them. I want to close with this story. This is the year, remember, of us taking responsibility for our marriages. It's not you, it's me. This is our new posture. There's a story in 2 Samuel 19. David's son, Absalom, has launched a rebellion against his father, David. The two are at war. And in 2 Samuel 18, Absalom is killed. And so David's soldiers return victorious from the battle. And they come through the gates of the city. And in the gates of the city is a seat. And on that seat, the king sits. The king sits in that seat. He does business between the gates. He hears from the people between the gates. And in moments like this, he welcomes back his armies victoriously as they walk before the king. Except that on this day, David was not in his seat. He was mourning the loss of his son, the loss of his adversary. And the Bible says in 2 Samuel 19 that the victory on that day was turned into mourning for the armies. So Joab, the commander of David's armies, grabs him. He says, you have humiliated your men. You have shown that your commanders mean nothing to you. He says this in verse 7. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come on you from your youth till now. We all need a friend like Joab, by the way. Someone who will tell us the truth, even when it hurts. Because look what it does to David in verse 8. It says, so the king got up and took his seat 
in the gateway. David almost lost everything he had because he was mourning something that was already gone. David almost lost his future because he was only looking at his past. And if there's one thing I see time and time again in the marriage relationship is men and women who have left their seat at the gates of their relationship. They're mourning what they've lost in life. They're feeling sorry for themselves. Men are going, man, I I don't have my independence like I used to. I don't have my free time. I don't get to do whatever I want anymore. I got all these people I got to serve. Pastor keeps telling me I got to lay my life down. What's up with that? You know how hard that is? I want to do that. They feel like they're owed something. And so they've, they've given up their seat at the gate for a seat in front of a screen. And their wives and their children suffer for a lack of leadership and a lack of presence. And there are women who are mourning the loss of their identity. The loss of their dream life, what their husband was supposed to be, what their children were supposed to be, a life of unmet expectations, that now their identity is wrapped up in serving somebody else. Well, what about me? And so they sacrifice their seat at the gate in front of a seat on social media. And their husbands and their children suffer from a lack of leadership and presence. Because when you leave your seat... When you forgo your position, when you lay down your role in the relationship, you risk losing everything that God has given you and everything that he is building within you. Because when that seat is left open, somebody or something is going to sit in it. And that seat wasn't meant for nobody else. That seat was meant for you. And I wonder if this morning a few men and a few women might shake off some rust in their relationship, might make a bold and a crazy declaration this morning that says, this seat, this seat is taken. This seat is mine. I'm taking back my seat in the gates of my relationship. I'm not mourning what I lost. I'm taking hold of what I have. I'm not looking to the past. I'm looking at the future because I believe God has great things for my household. I believe God will do wonders in my life. I believe God has a purpose in my relationship that goes beyond what I can see. Lamenting what you've lost does not permit you to forget what you've got. You can do both. You can do both. And if we allow Christ's example, the love of God that is within us, to inspire us, that we would lay down our lives for another, that we would lift up our spouse each and every day, prioritize their needs, meet their needs, humble yourself as Christ and put them before you. If you would submit yourself to Christ and allow him to lead you. Just like David, the whole city comes under our protection. And Grace Covenant Church, we will be a church that models right relationship in every household. Because our marriages will be one of the greatest apologetics of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And when we live this way and walk, with this, walk this way, if we allow Christ to redeem our past, to restore our future, the whole city will come under our protection. And God will do more with your marriage than you ever thought possible. But we've got to take our seat back in the gate. Let's pray. Father God, we love you and we are grateful for marriage, for the gift that it is to see you glorified each and every day. God, help us. Help us take hold of you. Help us to cherish you. Help us to submit ourselves to you so that we would be a people whose marriages shout of the glory of God. Christ, come and have your way.